The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash GetCertified. Hi, everyone. This is Ramdas Here and Now podcast. I'm Raghu Marcus. And today our podcast is featured around our new book, which I've been talking about on the podcast, Love Everyone by Parvati Marcus. We have the same name, so obviously we were married. We were one of the couples that was married by Maharaji back in the day. Parvati, welcome. Thank you. And of course, you know, we always wonder why. I know he must have married about a dozen couples. One of them is together still, right? Right. So, uh, but we're all, but uh, fortunately, through karma and grace, all of us uh, in in the satsang who were formerly together and not together are still together, and that's because of. Maharaji and that glue of love and um, you know we as a satsang so here we are and what how many years ago maybe 20 years ago or more did we sit around and think about gee we should put these diaries together yeah it's been a long time <laughs> a long time coming yeah yeah so love everyone uh, is finally out. I mean, uh, the last couple of years, Parvati went around and interviewed um, many, many, many people. What, 80, 90 people? Something? No, I think it was just over 70. 70 Maybe. people. Yeah. And most of their stories uh, are in this new book, and it's our journey to India, those of us in the early 70s that went over and met Maharaji. Many of us, of course, uh, came through Ramdas. We had heard about him that way, although some of us did not, had nothing to do with Ramdas. Far fewer, right? Yeah, mo- many of them were through Ramdas. Yeah. Many of them, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you can go anywhere books are sold to get Love Everyone. You can go to get the electronic version through Kindle, through Apple, through Barnes & Noble, and you can get the physical at your local bookstore, or you can go to Barnes & Noble, or you can just order it on Amazon. And I think people should know that it's coming out next month in December in India, because I keep getting really? requests from India. When are we going to see it? Really? Yeah, it's coming out in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and India next month. And it'll ah. be Amazon.in. Yeah. And Amazon in Great Britain is whatever yes. Amazon is there? Yeah. Yeah, because people from around the world listen to this podcast. So, good. So, there you go, everybody. Um, so, I want to start this off. Uh, Parvati and I are going to, we're going to talk about the book a little bit. Uh, but uh, 
our main intention is really to give you a feeling of what's in the book and what this was all about for us in going to India. Of course, many of you have heard a lot of different stories through this podcast, from me, from Ram Dass, of course, with all those talks. Uh, so it's really interesting to see all these other people and what they went through and how they got to Maharaji, what they went through with him, and uh, and then, of course, uh, returning back. And uh, the first thing I want to do, though, Parvati, is play a thing that we found in our archives, which is um, Ramdas coming back after the second time of being in India, and he went on some radio show, and somebody said, "Would you please tell us what 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 is this like to be with this with this guru? What's it like to be with Maharaji?" And he, for the first time, he said in this thing, he actually talked about him and uh, and and gave a really pretty far out uh, description. So let's play this, and then uh, let's chat about it for a minute. It's a uh, a topic that is. Uh as big as any I can conceive of because uh, uh, I just uh, turn it a liquid when I even think about it let alone try to describe it I'm looking at this moment at a picture of his feet <laughs> that's how far out it is I could describe his feet to you <laughs> um, the, um, but I think it is um, useful just to try to convey a little bit about my feelings about my guru, not in any sense to... Uh, the delicate thing is that I'm not interested in creating desires in other people or f making other people feel frustrated uh, because they don't have a guru in the same relationship that I do because what you and I may see in Maharaji is just what you and I see, and that's because of what we need to see for our own work. And other people find their direction through ways very much other than the guru. And so I've been very reticent to speak about this only because of that. Otherwise, I think I would probably not want to talk about much else because of where it is in my head. Um, and uh, he has never encouraged me to send people to him or to... Uh, talk about him publicly so uh, you are the first person that's even mentioned his name on the air I always call him Maharaji which covers many many holy men in India which I think is the best way to deal with that because those that need to find those that he needs to have find him will find him I guess um, to talk about him a little bit um, uh, <laughs> I get speechless. Uh, you know, on the physical plane, he is a, a jungle sadhu who has, uh, in past years, recent years, started to spend more time in uh, temples around northern India that devotees have built in order to try to capture him or hold on to a little bit of that light. And he appears in one and stays for a little while, and then just when they get all their rituals in order to hang on to him forever, he's gone. In the middle of the night, he just disappears again. I mean, not in any astral sense. He just uh, 
and gets somebody with a car to take him off somewhere. Nobody knows where he's gone, and uh, he turns up somewhere else. And uh, he uh, floats around in that way so that nobody can really control that kind of light in him. Uh, when you're with him, uh, when I am with him, I experience... Um, many, many levels. At the uh, personality, social level, he's often uh, infuriating and frustrating and Mickey Mouse and uh, uh, repetitive and childlike and stubborn and willful and playful and funny and um, an old man and a little child and uh, very concerned and very indifferent and um, um, that's at one level. Uh, at another level, when I'm in his presence, I f experience ecstasy and bliss from the depth of the love that uh, our relationship uh, has for me. And that uh, that's a drunken kind of love where I... Uh, I uh, often find myself uh, just uh, dissolved into tears because I've just never experienced such profound love from any being. Uh, and often, just when I'm going into that, he will interrupt it with some question like, uh, how much does Stephen, how much money does Stephen make or something like that, just to bring me back to the plane. He keeps me very firmly down, if you will, on the physical plane until my work is done. He doesn't allow me to uh, just float around in bliss very much when I'm around him. Um, then on a deeper level, uh, this time when I was with him, he said to me when I first met him, uh, he asked me why I'd come back and I told him to purify myself more. And He said, uh, I am always in communion with you. And uh, I have more and more deeply understood that to be the case, and in fact, that's now who he is for me. He is, a, he is a being who is with me always, and sometimes he's with me so closely that I am him. That is, that I'm saying things to people, or I'm acting towards people, in certain ways where I look at the reaction they're having to me and I see they're not reacting to me, but they're reacting to him. That is that he's just coming through me completely. And at that point, I don't feel his presence because in some sense I am his presence. And then the rest of the time, I just feel like I am constantly hanging out with him at this very, very subtle plane. Um, and at this plane, I just feel him as this gentle, firm guide who's slowly drawing me towards himself, just pulling me ever so gently. And there's no rest. It's a continuous process. And I take almost everything that happens to me as part of his teachings to me. I take everything if I can remember. All of the, uh, like if I get uptight about wanting to do good about something, I see him saying to me, well, you're still caught, aren't you? You really still care, don't you? And I can just constantly talk with him all the time at that level. He is, um, he has devotees at many, many different levels of, uh, of uh, 
attachment to him. Some are attached to his body and to him sort of as a grandfatherly figure to their families, in many Indian families. He has many, many Indian devotees. They're villagers, very simple people. Uh, and uh, there are no big gatherings ever except a few small ones at the temples, but no great big public thing. Uh, and his... Uh, his sort of simplicity and humility is awesome. He has just a blanket and a dhoti, and he sits on a wooden table. And when you go into the room he's staying in, it's you're struck by the absence of everything that you would associate with somebody's bedroom. There is no reading lamp, and there is no there are no books hanging around, and there's no uh, uh, there's no evidence that there's a human being living there. It's just. Uh, he walks in, he sits down on this wooden table that's sometimes covered with some quilts, and uh, there he is, and that's that's his universe, and he's fulfilled. You can see, and there are many pictures of him just sitting by the side of a road, and uh, that was enough for him. Um, he, um, uh, Others are very uh, attached to him because of the miracles that are associated with him. There are many uh, stories that the Indians have of various uh, things that he's done that are um, um, showing the use of incredible siddhis or powers uh, for all kinds of things. So many Indian people come to him asking for favors, asking him to use these siddhis. And uh, uh, there is a very awesome quality about um, those interactions because they're asking as if he were somebody who uses the cities or doesn't and the whole dance is almost as if he's somebody who bestows grace or doesn't and at the same moment when i'm sitting with him i see that there really is nobody there at all there is merely a form and that the only time that they are going to get what they ask for is if it is their karmic predicament that that should happen and if it is further their karmic predicament, that they should perceive it as happening through him. That it's not like he's sitting around deciding, shall I do it or shouldn't I do it? And even when he's saying the words like he's deciding whether he should or shouldn't, that's all part of their karmic runoff. That you begin to see that all he is is a manifestation of the desires of the people around him. And that a being like that only is in form because of desire of other people, because there isn't any desire in him. And every time you project desire in him, that's why a being like him is such a pure mirror, because he keeps showing you where you're not. Because if you get 10 people to sit around talking about him, everyone will describe him a different way. And they're all describing, of course, it's like the blind man with the elephant. Each person is describing what he's touched of him. And he's touched what he was capable of touching. You know the story of the blind man and the elephant, I assume, where one touches the tail and another touches the leg and another touches the side and another touches the trunk. And, and one says, uh, later they're talking at lunch, and one blind man says, an elephant is very like a tree. And another says, no, he's like a snake. And another says, no, he's like a wall. And they get into a tremendous fight because each of them has touched a different part of the elephant. Um, then... Um, uh, there are other devotees who uh, who merely see him as God incarnate, and uh, they are uh, 
very uh just very humble before him and they ask for nothing and they just uh serve him in any way they possibly can they just feel so blessed to have a being like that in form to be even near um there is one uh particular being who is uh one of his uh, closest uh devotees i guess uh it's interesting. See, he doesn't have any big ashrams or uh, there's no scene. And most of the time he just throws you out if you go near there. <clears throat> he lets you stay five minutes and sends you away. And uh, uh, so you can't collect him. <laughs> you can't hold on to him. There's no, uh, you can't just hang out the way you'd like to, unless it's that's what your work needs to be at that moment. But there is one devotee who's the... Um, He's a professor, he's a PhD, he's a professor of economics. He's the head of an economics department at a major university in India. And he is the one of the older devotees of Maharaji. And his devotion is a model for me of this form of yoga that I'm pursuing, which is really called Guru Kripa, or the method of the guru. And it's he pursues the total surrender to uh, Maharaji. And here is a man who in his own right, he's the uh, editor of the leading economic journal in India, very reputable, high intellectual being. And everything in his life is done only in relation to Maharaji. He only keeps his job or works because Maharaji tells him to do that. And when he's with Maharaji, his service is so total and pure and it's just as if if you look at your hand and you go to make a fist and you notice how your fingers come together, each finger doesn't think for itself, should I come together? You send a message and the fingers come together. And he is exactly like a finger on Maharaji's hand. He's just a perfect instrument. There's not any place in him that has that little uh, will that says, should I do it or shouldn't I? Or but you said, or anything like that. He's just a perfect, perfect extension. He's like Hanuman is to Ram. And uh, then there's the other aspect of Maharaji, of course, in which uh, he is uh, very intimately uh, related with uh, Ram and Hanuman. Just how intimately related is a source of some mystery to those of us that are around him. Uh, there are... <laughs> many beings who have uh, reported um, being with him when he has turned into Hanuman. And uh, there is one man that every time he comes near Maharaji, he takes one look and he passes out cold. And when they revive him, all he says is, all I saw was a huge monkey. And uh, my feeling is that on an astral plane or on another plane, Maharaji is, um, he, is a he is Hanuman. He is Hanuman manifest at this time. That's who I think he is. But that even that is only a game, you understand, because a being who is nobody is everybody. And he's merely taking that form because that's the particular form that's connected with that particular sect. I think it would be even too limiting to call him anything at all, because in a way, a being such as that is every way you think of him, he is. And uh, there's nothing you can say he isn't in a funny kind of a way. Uh, he uh, He's known to show up in many places simultaneously to appear and disappear to uh, um, all these kinds of things. And he always denies it all, by the way. I mean, he leaves you always with the 
doubts. He leaves you always in a very funny space that if you were going to test him, you'd always come away saying, oh, well, he's just an old man in a blanket. And it's only those that are saying, look, the hell with testing, I'm going, going, going. Those are the ones that start to experience his grace. And that's the predicament that the West, people say to me, look, if he's so high, why doesn't he come here to the West and demonstrate his powers for us so science can get ahead? And that's like uh, asking the elephant to uh, uh, reorganize his life in order to serve the mosquito in some kind of a way. I mean, Western science is just a trivia in the, when, in the presence of a being like this. It's all nice and well-meaning and good. But the rational mind is just another little dance. And uh, um, it's only when you're thinking of... Uh, moon and tides and the sun and universes and and the passing of yugas and kalpas of time and uh, timelessness and eternal beings and so on that you're dealing in the realm of uh, Maharaji. And the quieter your mind is, the more you're sitting in your own ajna where you can meet him. Anytime you want to meet him, all you have to do is bring your mind totally to one point right at your ajna, at the place between your eyebrows. And all you have to do is ask for him. Your thought brings him. Anybody, any human being's thought brings that pure guru to him the moment that thought is pure enough, intent enough, single-minded enough. A guru only exists to serve his devotees. That's the only reason for his existence. And seeing him in the physical form is only another part of the dance and another part of the illusion. The, the devotee, the econo economist I was telling you about, said to me once, I'm closer to Maharaji when I'm away from him than when I'm with him. Because when I'm with him, my senses get in the way. I get lost into enjoying because he's such fun to hang out with. And it's interesting that it's true for me that I've, I'm meeting him in a much deeper place when I'm not around the melodrama of the temple life with him. Uh, at the same moment, of course, it's fun to hang out with him. But less and less is that a pulling matter. Like for me, it doesn't really matter whether I go back to India or not. It would be fun, but I don't think I'm going away from him. When he just threw me out of India this last time, I was sobbing and a woman came up and said, don't cry, you can come back. And I said, I'm not crying out of sadness, I'm crying out of bliss. I said, I'm just so happy that he's even telling me to do anything because I just want to be an instrument of him. And that's all I can ever ask him is make me a pure instrument of your will. And that's a far out thing because no longer do I even have a desire to be enlightened. I'm not interested in becoming a being all done. That is not a realistic thing for me. It may happen or it may not. I don't know. But I feel a thing because he has kept saying to me, I'll do that for you. I'll do it for you. And what's been happening to me is that more and more, I am less and less in evidence to myself. More and more, I'm just just whatever it is I am doing at the moment. I mean, it's just happening. I'm just, uh, I'm just action. I'm not self-conscious action. And I can feel that I am, in a sense, becoming like a finger on his hand or like uh, Hanuman is referred to Ram as the, in relation to the breath of Ram. 
and I'm perfectly content to be the breath of Maharaji. Uh, that is, um, I think, enough of that. <laughs> so, yeah, tell us, what, give us your little comments on that. Talk well, by Ram Dass. wonderful to hear Ram Dass, of course, telling the old story about the blind men and the elephant. And each one touches the elephant mm. and thinks it's something different. You know, the one touches the trunk, thinks it's a snake. The one touches the leg, thinks it's a tree. Um, and with Maharaji, I mean, 20 of us could be sitting in front of him and he would say something and we'd all hear something different. Uh, in the book, there's a wonderful two stories, one by Dr. Larry where he's sitting with Maharaji, and hears Maharaji talk about the Westerners that he sees sitting in a distance. And he sees Maharaji looking at them as if he's looking at their Akashic records. And uh, Maharaji said, he hears Maharaji say that, uh, you know, look at all these flowers. They all bloom at the same time, but their paths are so very different. Now, Suil, um, who later became a nun and now does something totally different, mm. uh, was also sitting there with Dr. Larry and Girija, and she heard Maharaji say, flowers all bloom at their own time. Mm. And for her, that was a very important thing in her life to hear. Mm. And that's what we love. We love that everyone got exactly what they needed. You know, it was so internal that whatever happened externally wasn't necessarily a truth that all of us you know, heard the same way. <laughs> right. And that was really a, a, a very much uh, part of the impetus and motivation for us because we look at our diaries. You know, we used to sit around and read our diaries and then we would, com com well, you and I, right? Yes. I mean, you had a diary at that time and I had a diary. And, of course, there was a lot of wonderful stuff. This would be for our, our grandchildren about how Maharaji put us together and what happened and uh, and our reactions to it on a day-to-day -day basis. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we put, which you actually did at one time, you actually put them on a uh, on a dock side by side. Right. You know? So you could see each day, okay, mm -hmm. he would interact with us and say whatever, and each day we would write down what we thought. Right. They might the be amused by the story of, uh, this was only like maybe a week after I first met Maharaji for the first time, and I got called into the room privately with just him and KK as the translator, of course, and Maharaji said to me, um, you know, he said, well, how old are you? And I think I was 25 at the time, <laughs> and he said, do you want to get married in India or America? And I looked at him like what are you talking about? And he said it again. I said, Maharaji, I don't know. He said, well, do you want to get married? Here I am sitting with Maharaji. I have nothing else I want in the world. Mm. I've got everything I want. I'm sitting with Maharaji. And uh, then he looks at me and he goes, you got anybody in mind? <laughs> I said, no, Maharaji, it's your choice. I'm like, teak. <laughs> really? Which is Okay. Yeah, and I went by there, this is before I met you, uh, it was in the middle of the monsoon season that year, and I, I was going to get a new passport, and I went by to see him on the way to Delhi, and there was no Westerners, there was just me, 
and it's a whole amazing story because it involved him telling me that something was going to happen in the next day of, of incredible import. But the first thing he said to me, are you married? <laughs> I said, uh, this is how stupid we were. I said, no, I'm not married. I only want to marry God. I only want to marry God. So after five minutes of uproarious laughter between him and the Indians, the f couple that were around him, and my face turned beet red, uh, that was what happened. So that did all happen to us, folks, though. So and that's how he he would play with us. It's just, uh, um, and in my case, at one point after he told us, "You're married, right?" You're <laughs> like he didn't say get married. He's all right. You're married now, right? right. And we, oh God, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and then the next day, I went to him and I said. You know, because he used to say that marriage brings greed, lust, and attachment. <laughs> so I said, well, why would anybody get married if you say it brings on all this horrible shit? And um, I was really saying to him, why are you doing this to me? And uh, he looked at me, and talk about no bullshit, and he said, he just looked at me and said, it's your desire, period. <laughs> right. Uh, my favorite moment when he called me up at one point and he looked at me and, you know, he said, you're married. <laughs> and I, I knew you were in no way ready to even think about that. <laughs> and I said, Avi Nay, Maharaji, not now. He said, when, in a year? <laughs> yeah, right. And then when he finally asked me at one point, point blank, he just said, will you marry that gentleman? They had to ask twice. And the second time I said, yes. And in English, he went, thank you. <laughs> oh, God. We had no idea what was going on, let me tell you. And and look what's ensued for not just us, but so many people, these families, and, and these families filled with young devotees, mm. right? And they were just, it was all fulfilling karmic propensity and rebirth on a level that we had even now of course have no idea what the reality is so, so great um i don't know is this a good time i i, I was sharing uh, with uh, parvati uh, before that we got going uh this um uh, bit of a diary entry from somebody who uh recorded her first meeting with her guru and uh and it's what she said resounds so much with us. It's not even funny. I mean, uh, so I thought in terms of what this was like, and uh, from from a, a point of view that uh, I think is really important. So, first time she meets her guru, I she said. When I was finally introduced to him, I was stunned as if I had received an electric shock. The most amazing thing I felt about him was his ability to penetrate my being thoroughly. He held out his hand to me, and when I took it, I felt the most unbelievable feeling of gentleness I have ever known. In contrast, my own energy felt painfully aggressive. Then I looked into his eyes. There was a softness and kindness exuding, which I had never experienced before, and beyond that, a depth I could not fathom. I couldn't find the person beyond those eyes. 
The effect on me was tremendously powerful. It was as if this man could see through to my deepest core, and yet he accepted me. I felt I had been penetrated by loving but X-ray eyes. My masks unraveled in the light of his being so real. All this took a moment, just a short exchange. I didn't understand what had happened and went immediately to my own room and sat there feeling shaken. I couldn't speak to anyone. It was as if I had been in front of an uncompromising mirror that reflected every tiniest detail and hidden corner of my mind and heart. How could it be possible for someone to reflect me so clearly and yet appreciate me so completely at one glance? I guess I fell in love. I, that's As just we all a, did. <laughs> this is such a perfect description, most especially about how you felt completely known. And I think... Uh, uh, and 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 unconditional. That's what Ramdas talks about with unconditional love, you know, completely known and yet unconditionally loved and accepted, and that's, no judgment, yeah. no judgment whatsoever. Yeah. So um, why don't we play? Uh, do you want to preface this uh, a little bit? Uh, it's uh, about uh, Shivaya. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Shivaya. Um, who, you know, thank goodness we have done all of these stories because Shivaya is no longer with us. And it's uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful storyteller. And in this clip, he's going to tell a story about how Maharaji did something that with Shivaya that he did with all of us, which was let us know he knew. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. Here is Shivaya. It's a pretty far out story because he ended up taking acid and having a whole deal go through his head about Maharaji and then it all came true. Here he goes, Shivaya. When I walked into the ashram, Maharaji was up on the tucket and there were like 15 to 20 devotees sitting around. And Maharaji just jumped up and he just started screaming, Gandhiji, Gandhiji, Gandhiji has come. Come, come, Gandhiji. And he's laughing and he's hysterical and everybody gets hysterical. And of course, I'm laughing and there's just this huge laugh fest going on. Come, Gandhiji said, oh, it's so good, Gandhiji said. And uh, so I thought that was a cool entry. You know, I mean, it was like, wow. You know, I was like, blown away. That night I dropped a hit and I sat in front of a the photo of Maharaji the finger. Well needless to say tripping looking at that photo every conceivable thing that I had ever done that uh, you know every good thing that I had done every, you know, uh, like my whole life ran through me with this finger. And uh, so now it was about three o'clock in the morning or something and I just got up and I, I left and I walked to uh, Kenji and I was uh, singing 
Kirtan all the way to Kenshi. So I was sitting in the back of the group and I said, well, Maharasi, I said, if you and I have any connection at all, I said, I'd like to see that mudra that I spent the night looking at. Mm -hmm. And as that thought came into my head, he was talking to somebody over here. And just as I thought that, he turned and went like that. And then went right back over here. And that sent like this electric current, like uh, racing through me. And it was just an instant, but it was just like direct. So that is a uh, perfect example of the kind of thing that would happen on a day-to-day basis, right, with Maharaja? Absolutely, yeah. And it didn't even have to be from something that happened when you were with him. You know, like with Shivaya, it was he had been somewhere else, taken the ass, had been looking at the picture. And I have a similar story with a picture where I first met Maharaji in a photograph a year and a half before I went to India and saw him there and uh, spent a lot of time over the next year and a half before I ever got to India talking to his picture. And one of the first things Maharaji ever said to me, when first Arshan, he looked at me and he said, you used to talk to my picture all the time. You asked many questions. Mm. So, right. Right. Mm. Yeah, the picture played a, a big role. It plays a big role now. Yes. Many, many, many people you know, have darshan through his pictures and so on, uh, and have that image in their heads and at night have dreams and so on. So, yeah. Um, let's see. I think it would be uh, interesting at this point to, because we talked about it before, uh, and the story from Janaki plays a role into uh, kind of what's happening to us right now in the world and uh, we thought uh, it would be good to mention so this is around forgiveness right talk about that just a general well she she does mention forgiveness in it um you know she's talking a lot about just what it means to be in that space with the guru and what it actually means inside yourself you know how we can remember who we are and if we can remember who we are and we can see in other people, the spark of the divine, then there's a chance for forgiveness and for, you know, for not looking at people who have done these horrible things that they have done, like in Paris and Beirut, and and still being able to find a place within our hearts where we still are all one and we can love everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, this is extraordinarily difficult, and we're not just saying these words. I mean, I do, uh, I w- as you know, I have a podcast with David Silver, our friend, and uh, Mind Rolling, and I don't know how often we get into this particular conversation of how do we get ourselves to be able to get into a real place of forgiveness, of compassion, of uh, unconditional love. And uh, how often do we find ourselves, never mind this extraordinary violence that has gone on in these places in the last couple of weeks, uh, but how about just when you hear what seems to us from a quote-unquote Republican candidate so awful and so mean-spirited 
and so unattentive to the needs of people who have needs, and you immediately have that in your heart of anger, of polarization, of us and them. So, I mean, we talk about this a lot. And, you know, and to me, that's what this book is really, the core of it that you walk away from is this feeling there is a potential. You realize this being, Neem Karoli Baba, and uh, this is not, he's part of that one. It's not... We loved that individual physical personality. It was a lot of fun. I mean, boy, was he fun. But uh, behind it all is that one thing that's in whoever, you know, Shirdi Sahibaba, you know, 16th Karmapa, whatever. Um, and uh, so uh, we, we just can take comfort that that is real he actually lived that and and whatever he gave that rubbed off a little bit in us uh, sharing that uh, through this book is really right. what it's about it reminds me of uh of when ramdas put a picture of uh president bush yeah right. on his puja table and everybody went oh my goodness <laughs> what's he doing that for but it was to be able to finally recognize, you know, that George Bush, too, had the spark of the divine within him. And as I say to everybody, it's not that you have to like everyone. <laughs> and you certainly don't have to like the things they're doing or saying, you know, but just to recognize our common humanity and our oneness at that level. Right. Um, and by the way, Ramdas himself would say, I did that so I could work with that. There's no way that he's he's saying mm -hmm. that he's just jumped into that unconditional place with him or anybody else he puts on his puja. And uh, so, and by the way, we're not comparing George to some of these hell on wheels crazies that are out there. Uh, although he did some rather interesting things. Um, so what, we were going to play this Janaki thing right here? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Janaki Rathod. Maharaji told me to remember God. And he didn't say God. So let me clarify that because that's important. He said Yadkaro. Hamesha Yadkaro means remember all the time. So to me, that meant because of the way that we were living there, to be in that space, that undifferentiated space, where you remember who you are in the divine sense all the time. And that has a couple of different effects. It allows you to be yourself, most importantly, and it also allows you to forgive other people and to for have forgiveness. It allows you to live in a state of grace. And the way that Maharaji had brought that particular uh, atmosphere into his surroundings was to have chanting going on all the time. So that either we were hearing Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, we were hearing Shri Ram Jairam, we were hearing the Hanuman Chalisa. We were hearing all kinds of bhajans that people might choose to sing 
But song was around us all the time. And it created a harmonic note that penetrated our minds all the time of the day. So that even if you were sitting, talking, if you were doing a chore, you were cleaning the dishes, whatever it was that you were engaged in, that was the daily things of life, having your bath, washing your clothes, you would hear in the background the melodies of the chants. Now, Maharaji himself didn't sing. He had other people doing the singing. He hired professional singers to come. And when they weren't singing, he had me or other people who were around who would do the singing, and he would assign that as a task. You know, some people were assigned different jobs and according to what, you know, they might want to do. And I was always assigned to sing. And I, I relished that assignment, even though I didn't get to sit with Maharaji. A lot of people have as their goal to sit with Maharaji, to spend as much time. And obviously, that's a good thing. That was a good thing. You go into the space. I actually did not get to sit with Maharaji as much as many people did because I was on the singing duty, which was, was great. Hey, <laughs> I got my tea and I sang all the time. And I really learned what it takes to actually do something, how much effort it takes to actually get something done. It helps me throughout my life. I know what perseverance is. I know what it is to sit there for eight or 10 or 12 hours and not do anything but one thing. And I can do that. And Maharaji taught me how to do that. So, yeah, what do you think? terms of what she talked about uh, remembering who we are I think that's important mm -hmm. um, yeah then Ram Geary what about Ram Geary oh uh, just thinking that the real important thing for all of us was not so much what Maharaji said or what Maharaji did or what our interaction on the physical plane was with him it was simply being in his presence Mm. And uh, Mirabai says it in the book, you know, she said there's now something about uh, in science about mirror neurons. Yeah, mirror neurons, yep. Right. And that uh, when you're in the presence of somebody who is that powerful, just being in their presence alone is enough to change, you know, everything within you. Right. You know, I remember Maharaji leaning over at one point and touching a fingertip to the top of my head and feeling like all the cells in my body rearranged. Mm. But yeah. he didn't even have to touch you to do that. Yeah. 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 Uh, and this, this, of course, is the... When they speak in India of a siddha, this particular trait you're talking about is the indica indicative trait that they don't have to do anything. It's, right. It just, it's all automatic. That's why I love in this book where she said, in this uh, thing from the diary that I read of this woman, by the way, I should say that this book is uh, Remembering Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche uh, by Jeremy Hayward. Mm -hmm. That's the attribution, so, and fantastic book, everybody. 
um, that uh, looking into his eyes, she could see no person. Right. right. That's yes. always the way it felt with Maharaji. It was sort of like you could push anywhere and it would go all the way through. Yeah. There, there was no hindrances within him. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Yeah. All right. So you want to, okay, you want to play this Ram Giri story. So let's do it. Ram Giri. Here you go. Maharaji. And just sitting in front of him. I was here the last year of his life and we stayed in the valley. Uh, we didn't have to travel back and forth. And we saw him every morning and every afternoon. We sat around him. There was maybe two or three dozen people at the most. And I would sit like right in front of him and just lose myself in his presence. And um, we always jokingly say we learned yoga in India. And then people ask, oh, what did you learn? He said, one asana, one posture. What is that? <laughs> and it was just absolutely mesmerizing and fascinating to be with him in a way that I can't describe in words because it was this profound love, this presence, this essence that was around him that transformed us all in no time with no teaching, no practice other than being with the beloved. And you were just melting into that love day after day after day. And then he vanished because we had to learn to find that in us. And I'm still working on it, and I'll, I'll work on that until the day I die. Ram Giri, and yeah, presence, uh, surely is that we were able to, to be around that presence. It's a huge, huge boon. I mean, huge. Total grace. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. and total fun, too, at the same mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Um, I have a clip that I would love to play. And it's something I found from a long time back. It's another Ramdas clip. And it's uh, in this clip, Ramdas tells uh, the quintessential story of Larry Brilliant, Dr. Larry. And, uh, and it's not about his uh, Maharaji getting him to cure smallpox. It's nothing about that. It's to me what this book is really all about, what we're all about, what anybody is all about ultimately, and that is to be able to, uh, as, we, as we were mentioning before, the fact that Maharaji exists and the fact that that human body, when it was still in a body, was present, just the fact that that is all true, everything is so the the realness of the potential that we have and the way that we were able to um, get that example from him on a day-to-day -day basis made us completely uh, acknowledge our own potential and the potential of anybody who just wants to have some intention to be able to share that kind of unconditional love. And this particular story from 
Ramdas, who tells, I mean, Larry tells this story. We actually have Larry telling this story, but not as good as Ramdas tells it here. <laughs> Ramdas was in his, uh, you know, Lenny Bruce on steroids uh, mode back in the day. And uh, so he, right? I mean, he tells his story fantastic. So right. I'd, I want to play this. The story's story. in the book as well, by the way. Yeah, and it's in the book. Yeah. All right, here, here's Ramdas telling uh, Dr. Larry Brilliant's story of. Uh, being with Maharaji. I'll read you one story uh, which I've been reading a lot of because just it conveys the combination because if you watch the way this happened, you'll see two dynamics in operation. This is a um, this is a doctor, a doctor with the World Health Organization. My, my guru was Neem Karoli Baba, and he was called Maharaji, which is a common name in India, given which means a great king. My guru died in 1973. It's called dropping the body in India. My wife had met Maharaji and had come to get me in America and bring me back to meet him. When we first went to see Maharaji, I was put off by what I saw. All these crazy Westerners wearing white clothes and hanging around this fat old man in a blanket. More than anything else, I hated seeing Westerners touch his feet. On my first day there, he totally ignored me. But after the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh day, during which he also ignored me, I began to grow very upset. I felt no love for him. In fact, I felt nothing. I decided that my wife had been captured by some crazy cult. By the end of the week, I was ready to leave. We were staying at the hotel up in Nanital, and on the eighth day, I told my wife I wasn't feeling well. I spent the day walking around the lake thinking that if my wife was so involved in something that was clearly not for me, it must mean that our marriage was at an end. I looked at the flowers, the mountains, the reflections in the lake, but nothing could dispel my depression. And then I did something that I had really never done in my adult life. I prayed. I asked God, what am I doing here? Who is this man? These people are all crazy. I don't belong here. Just then I remembered the phrase, had ye but faith, ye would not need miracles. Okay, God, I don't have any faith. Send me a miracle. <laughs> I kept looking for a rainbow but nothing happened. So I decided to leave the next day. The next morning, we took a taxi, taxi down to Kenshi to the temple to say goodbye. Although I didn't like Maharaji, I thought I'd just be very honest and have it out with him. We got to Kenshi before anyone else was there, and we sat in front of his tucket, his wooden bed on the porch. Maharaji had not yet come out from inside the room. There was some fruit on the tucket, and one of the apples had fallen on the ground. So I bent over to pick it up. Just then, Maharaji came out of his room and stepped on my hand 
pinning me to the ground. So there I was, on my knees, touching his foot. In that position, I detested how ludicrous. He looked down at me and he asked, where were you yesterday? He said that in Hindi. Were you at the lake? He said the word lake in English. When he said the word lake to me, I began to get this strange feeling at the base of my spine and my whole body tingled. It felt very strange. He asked me, what were you doing at the lake? I began to feel very tight. Were you horseback riding? No. Were you boating? No. Did you go swimming? No. Then he leaned over and he spoke very quietly. Were you talking to God? Did you ask for something? When he did that, I fell apart and started to cry like a baby. He pulled me over and started pulling my beard and repeating, did you ask for something? Did you ask for something? That really felt like my initiation. By then, others had arrived and they were around me caressing me and I realized then that almost everyone there had gone through some experience like that. A trivial question such as, were you at the lake yesterday, which had no meaning to anyone else, shattered my perception of reality. After that, I just wanted to rub his feet. And that's what I love about this story is... is that key line, I don't know how many times I, I tell this line. I thought, well, Maharaji can love me. That's his job. He's a saint. But the fact that I loved everyone else around me in that moment was a miracle. And that's the miracle, uh, and the, that's what I was talking about before, where the fact we were we actually witness, that's the word, we witness, we are witness to the reality of the potential that we all have by virtue of being with him. God, guru, and self are one, as he said many times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I know, I have one other, well, you should, uh, we should... Uh, is there any, we should talk a little bit, I guess. And we haven't mentioned a thing about how you put this book together or anything. I mean, oh. <laughs> and what did it do for you? Well, first of all, it was just wonderful to go around and sit with everybody and have them tell me their Maharaji stories. I mean, what could be better? <laughs> and another thing that was wonderful was meeting people that I didn't even know were devotees. I would be with somebody and they would say, hey, have you talked to so-and-so? And it's like, I've never even heard of so-and-so. So for me, that was wonderful to meet new devotee, new to me devotees. Mm. Um, and then basically in putting the book together, it was a question of getting all of the uh, interviews transcribed and doing what I do as a, in my normal working life as a developmental editor and putting it all together. 
and putting it in a chronological, you know, I found the best way to present it was chronologically. And so it sort of gives an overview of the time that the Westerners were with Maharaji because it did change from the first wave of all of us who were there at the same time Ramdas was to how different it became after Ramdas left. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And how many, I mean, I see people in pictures and go, who's that? I don't even know. I never saw them again. I mean, there's people who came and just right. were there for a very brief moment and whatever happened, God knows what effect it was supposed to have. I right. had no idea. So, Maharaji said that he, uh, he, he could have called 10,000, he called 1,000. And out of the 1,000, who knows how many heard the call, mm, yeah. you know, and answered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is amazing. What We figure, um, what, a couple of hundred Westerners? Yeah. Tops were over yeah. there. That's what we, you know. But then again, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, to some degree, though. I mean, because the Indians tell us there were no, okay, there were three Americans, Bhagwan Das and another couple, before mm. you got there, basically. Well, and then there was, like, Frank and Jan. Well, they're part of... There. Yeah. Yeah. They before can... Danny and, and Jeff and Jim. Yeah, but they got there in 70 in the summer, I believe. Right. Yeah, so yeah. They, they would be counted as part of the whole deal. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing, anyhow, any which way you put it, because if you look today... And you see uh, any of, uh, well, I mostly think about the, some of the Tibetans uh, that have these gig you know, gigantic followings and are, and are real, you know, substantial teachers and so on. So uh, we, were, you know, we were lucky at that point. Very lucky to be able to sit with somebody like Maharaji in a small group yeah. and, you know, somebody who did not... Uh, was not attached to any of the Hindu rules. I mean, men and women weren't separated. I mean, it was a very, uh, you know, very compatible with what yeah. we were comfortable with. <laughs> yeah, one day, Maharaji, we were all in a group in Dada's house in the living room sitting all together, of course, as we always did. And um, a middle-aged Indian woman came and said to Maharaji, this isn't a proper, appropriate. Men should sit on one side and women on the other. Maharaji said... Leave them alone. They're from America. What do they know? <laughs> <laughs> Not much. <laughs> yeah, and that was the, the thing. Oh, and look, the other thing, because the way we're speaking now, which is something I want to address, uh, and Ramdas did in his uh, talk about Maharaji, that clip we played uh, or at, at the very beginning of the podcast where he talked about this is not to make anybody feel jealous that I was over there or to feel less than, or anything like that. And in this case, um, Maharaji has proved over and over and over he does not need a body to connect with anybody. I mean, just absolutely doesn't. And, uh, I, I mean, I see this all the time because I get all the mail that comes to to us and to Ramdas and... Uh, so it's it's a pretty amazing, and uh, we should always emphasize the fact that probably we were real hard cases that needed to get <laughs> over there and touch that those feet physically. Uh, you know that's got to be part of it as well. So, right. And uh, one of the wonderful, I mean, when I was working on the book, and I, heaven knows I read it over and over and over again, and each time I would cry at another place. Hmm. 
in the book. Mm. And now I'm getting emails and messages from people going, I can't stop crying. I'm reading the book and I keep crying. And uh, it all comes down to the heart opening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that uh, absolutely needs no physical mm-hmm. approximation. Absolutely nothing. Um, well, I found a story. We're, we're, we're at the end, and I just thought, I'd, here's a story that no one's ever heard before. How about that? Okay. For the show, I thought, one story nobody ever heard before and it's kind of an amazing story and it's uh, a story that was told to me by uh, a good friend uh, a uh, an Indian devotee who lives in the United States named Donnie Banerjee and his wife Rupa and uh, he was in Kenshi at one time many years ago I believe well maybe early 2000s and just before he was going to leave Kenshi all of you, all of you, many of you know K.K. Shah, our close, close family, friend, mentor. He's been to the retreats. There's stuff on Ramdas.org from him. He's in some of the films. So, And he's Ramdas's closest brother. And Parvati is working on a new book of his. And his picture is in Love Everyone. We right. want to see who he is. Yeah, yeah. so he's, uh, he was the first translator for Ramdas. He was the first translator for... Uh, Ramesh, who were the first ones who went, Ramesh, Danny, and uh, Krishnadas. So he ca- KK same t- came to say goodbye in Kenshi just that day, and he and uh, KK's school principal was Donnie's grandfather. Okay, and he said to Donnie, "You know, it was 1948, Donnie." He said, and I was sitting with another devotee with Maharaji, and suddenly Maharaji said. Whoop, I just saved the principal. He was going to drown, but I saved him. <laughs> KK didn't know what Maharaji meant until he, he returned to Nainital and discovered that Donnie's grandfather, his school principal, had almost drowned in the lake outside of the uh, mother temple by the lake in Nainital. When KK told Donnie that story, uh, he said, no, you must be mistaken. I, I never heard this story in my family, but there was another story of my father almost drowning him, and, and so on. Uh, but, uh, no, you're mistaken. Mistaken. KK was insistent that I was wrong, that I needed to check with my mother. So he, he went back to Delhi the next day, and as soon as he got home, he said to his mother, okay, there was this incident, right? He drowned. She confirmed it happened. He said, my grandfather used to visit Nani Devi Temple every evening. He would wash his feet on the lake and then enter the temple. That day, apparently, he slipped on the steps while washing his feet and fell into the lake, and he didn't know how to swim. He had later told my grandmother that he had fallen in and was reaching the bottom of the lake, but suddenly felt as if someone lifted him out. The next thing he knew was that he was standing on the steps next to the lake. He did not know what happened. It is interesting, Donnie says, that this incident happened in 1948, and my mother told me that my grandmother used to often talk about it. They couldn't figure it out. She always wondered as to how my grandfather got saved, and yet no one in my family ever knew that Maharaji was involved. It, it took, at this point, 60 years later, that Maharaji, for some reason, decided that we should know of his involvement. I mean, 
Okay, that's crazy. So that's uh, an untold story just for uh, this podcast on Love Everyone. So uh, anything to add, Parvati? I don't think so. No. I mean, I'm, I just feel like I've been sort of swimming in love since the book came out because yeah. I keep getting such wonderful, oh, yeah. you know, feedback from people who just are having their hearts open. And that, that feels really good. <laughs> so everybody go on out there and get the book wherever you would like to get the book because it's available absolutely everywhere. Uh, people, a lot of people are going, well, we should support our local bookstore. And yeah, that's always a good thing. Not nothing. Why not Barnes and Noble? And we haven't, you know, we have a Amazon link, and we get a little. The foundation Ramdas Dada gets a little piece of every everything that's bought through uh, Amazon. So that's another way you'll find that on the site, Ramdas Please go there and. Uh, um, Get the book. That's all we can say. You're going to like it. And Parvati, thanks for being here. It was fun. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you, every everybody. We'll see you next time on Ramdas Here and Now. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.